okay, all uphill from here, or downhill. No, not uphill. All downhill from here. Downhill from here is the expression. Okay, let's go. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, Doug Luck's sure he doesn't love sausage, but Kitty's sure Doug Ramsey does in Excalibur number 105, Hard Truths, in which Kitty eventually apologizes for being a jerk. Excalibur number 105 was originally published in January 1997, and the creative team is Keith Given and John Arcudi on writing, Brian Hitch on pencils, Paul Meary plus Robin Higgs and Hitch again on inks, Ariel on Lenshock and Malibu Color on Colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on Letters, and Matt Idealson and Paul Tatrone on Editing. Hey, you know what? You're, you're not a bad dancer. Dancing fool. Big finish. Right. Men, I'm going to bed, and in the morning, you have to find yourself a new home. This home. Stephanie home. Number five home. Oh, number five, you don't know what you're saying. Number five, no. Welcome to another installment of Excalibur Chat 1997 edition. Where was I in 1997, you might ask? I'm not sure, but wherever I was, I was probably wearing buttonfly jeans and extra large t-shirts with the logos of exotic, now mythical companies like Esprit and Hollywood Jeans. But who am I? I am one of your regular hosts, Dr. Anna Papard. When I'm not reminiscing about the fashions of the late 90s, I'm talking and writing and teaching about representations of gender and sexuality and pop culture for journals and books and websites and Twitter accounts. Yes, I'm still calling it Twitter. This includes the Twitter accounts of Bunch of Scholars, which relevant to Excalibur fans is currently doing a deep dive on Mojo Mayhem. You're going to want to check that out. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I'm asking Brian Hitch, why you gotta spend so much time trying to peer up my guy's nostrils? You're not going to find anything interesting up there. Rest assured, my client keeps that shit tight. I'm joined as always by Mav. Which interesting angles are you exploring this week? Uh, you know, we've done this show before, so you know, go listen to any of the previous 105 episodes, and I, I like gave how, intro, and that's me. I like how your intro, has, your intro has become, rather than just spend a second introducing yourself, go listen to our previous 116 episodes. Well, I mean, that was, that, I mean, I would, but 
I would, except for this book doesn't bother to. This book just rehashes stuff that we've done yeah. before. And this so, so much so that in the middle of the book, I was like, I thought Alistair was gone. And that's not, that, that's not Rory because he's got a leg. And it took me, like, it took me, no joke, like 15 pages to go, oh, that's Pete Wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> because the book didn't bother to reintroduce, you know. Yeah, you, you remember back in the day when, when Claremont would just open a scene with like 47 X-Men and they'd all go, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've got so much pathos because I'm afraid <laughs> that like someone does, this person doesn't love me, but- I've got optic blast and that's why I need to have my visor on all the time. Oh yeah. My name is Cyclops. Yeah. I missed that. So, but this book doesn't have that. So I didn't feel like I needed to introduce myself. If you've listened to a podcast before, I was probably on it. <laughs> Safe bet. <laughs> Statistically, yeah. Well, okay then. I'm moving on to Andrew. Andrew, how's your appetite this week? I could go for pizza with Doug Lock, Kitty, and Rain. That sounds good. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Um, I actually want to ask Anna a question in, in my intro here. This is a story about Kitty refusing to accept Doug Lock's new name and calling him Doug. Was your Twitter thing intentional as part of that? No, it honestly wasn't. And okay. I probably should have connected those two things back and I didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> there's that meme that I know you shared with our chat that yes. uh that I also saw on Twitter, aka X of Yeah. Go ahead, say what you were gonna say and then I No, no, I don't I don't know. I, I don't well, know just, that okay. I wanna say the meme. People can look it up. No, I'll do it. The idiot. The idiot who owns Twitter now. Like I've been saying as you know as a joke for the last year on my other show on Vox Pop Vox Popcast is you know if, you, if this is for some reason your first episode I host another show called Vox Popcast and I always close it out at the end you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter if it still exists at Chris Maverick and it was a joke because you know Elon was gonna drive Twitter away and he was just gonna destroy it it was pretty clear that that's where it was gonna go and then I would also say mm. you know Twitter might not exist by the time this episode comes out because I recorded it two weeks in your past. So I do that. Like a lot of times I'll, you know, I'll pre-record. We pre-record this show a couple of weeks uh, ahead of time when it actually airs. And Vox Popcast is often the same way. Sometimes it's that week. Sometimes it might be two or three weeks in the future. So I've done that. I have like two weeks of shows for Vox Popcast where I say, and Twitter, if it still exists. And you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't exist anymore because Elon made it go away. And also like just saying, follow me on x.com. What are we doing? Just I know. I know. What, what, what is this? What? It's just like, some, I saw some great like tweet and I'm still calling them tweets. They'll never be posts. <laughs> no, and they're not. And, and they're not X's. And it's just, I just know. stop. He's not but like making a joke about the the big X sign that he put on top of the building, and it's like this looks like the evil <laughs> vampire lair from a Blade movie, and I was like, God, it so yeah. does, no, <laughs> like, which is funny, but not in reality. This is a whole podcast about X related <sighs> things, and we don't like it. Even we do not like this. <laughs> I don't. I don't. It looks like a fake internet that they would have made up in a 1997 X Men comic. Anyway, it's also the logo to X Eleven, and I know, like, if you're old enough geek that you remember X Windows, it is very, very similar to the X Windows, which is a you know, the operating system or a windowing system for Unix systems that people used to use. You know, before like. 1999 yeah <laughs> it's such a millennial thing it's so dumb it's so awful 
Anyway, moving on. Andrew, we interrupted your introduction. I'm so sorry. No, no. Go look it up on another podcast. It's a good way for us to sell podcasts if that's what we're doing. If that's what, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we. I don't know how it works. (laughs) I don't either. Podbean sends me a lot of emails telling me to monetize. I have not done so yet. I think we're past past that threshold. Anyway, let's move on. We are thrilled to be joined this week by an entirely fabulous returning guest who last joined us to talk about Kurt and Drag during the Crosstime Caper. It's one, Dr. Nicholas Miller. Hello, Nick. Hello. So thrilled to have you back. I'll give you a little bio to refresh you for our listeners, and we'll get right into it. Dr. Nicholas E. Miller is a comic studies scholar and recently moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where he teaches middle school language arts. His scholarly interests focus primarily on comics and transmedia studies. You can find his work in publications such as Inks, Feminist Media Histories, The Oxford Handbook of Comic Book Studies, and Mixed Race Superheroes, among others. Margaret Galvan once referred to him as the foremost Dazzler scholar, which remains his favorite <laughs> compliment to this day absolutely so now nick we've already done your comics origin story back when we covered excalibur number 15 which is such a great episode and i actually think about our combo there all the time but anyway we won't do origins again here but i thought we would catch up with what you've been up to i know you've had a bit of a career change since we last talked to you moving into a k-12 environment and yeah i was curious about kind of your experience you know if you're willing to talk about it of whether you're still using comics and you're teaching in that environment or whether some of your comics research is ongoing and like what that kind of shift has been like for you yeah i mean i i took the the opportunity to make the move to k-12 right at the beginning of covid uh, my family and i wanted to get back closer to our extended family we were looking not to be the next person on governor kemp's hit list in georgia mm-hmm. trying to find ways to sort of continue to do the type of educational work that my wife and i both do but also um, have a little bit more control over our lives in some ways and so uh, the opportunity came about to switch to k-12 i actually took that opportunity to make a really big switch to middle school teaching um, not just down to second ed. Uh, yeah. And that's been really quite lovely. It definitely has disrupted my scholarly progress in certain ways. I have essays coming out in a couple of edited collections, and I'm working on an edited collection with some co-editors myself right now. But, you know, the schedule's a little bit different, obviously. But the teaching, in a lot of ways feels very similar. It's a different audience. It's a different age group. There's some added components that come with having a bunch of young hormonal bodies in a room (laughs) that are trying to make sense of the world. But um, a lot of the practices, a lot of the pedagogical practices remain the same. You slow it down a little bit. You sometimes try to find different types of footholds for the students. And honestly, comics have been a really important part of that for me. Uh, Over the last two years, when I've been teaching seventh and eighth grade language arts, we've looked at Celia C. Perez, first rule of punk, which is not a comic per se, but is really invested in zine culture and thinking about how we use visual narratives to better understand ourselves and our own identities and our place in the world. Uh, I've taught New Kid. I've taught the first trade paperback of Ms. Marvel. I'm actually preparing to teach American-born Chinese right now with my teaching partner here at MICDS. Um, I've even used uh, the Nathan Hale graphic novels uh, when I was doing Model United Nations recently to help students understand a little bit about the Haitian Revolution. Uh, We were actually uh, a delegation from Haiti for the Model UN in Lexington this last year. And it was really lovely to sort of give them a graphic narrative to help them access some of the history and think about some of the long-term issues that Haitians have dealt with uh, in terms of colonization and international debt and things like that. So um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing a lot more reading of middle grades, graphic novels 
novels recently because of this switch. So, yeah. you know, I've, I love Snapdragon. I've read the Ajawaja, uh, the Moth Keeper, a bunch of those yeah. that I think are really doing great work at helping students to deal with a really difficult time in life, right? I mean, let's face it, adolescence is a time of self-exploration and trying to figure out who we are as our bodies and our worlds change in really dynamic ways. And I find that comics are often ahead of other young adult and middle grades fiction even in terms of providing opportunities for students to have the types of windows and mirrors they need to make sense of all of that. Well, I love to hear when people are actually teaching with that stuff because I feel like... (laughs) Even in a space like this, we do so much talking about adolescent metaphors and something like X-Men comics, and yet we are all not young people. (laughs) No. It's like like cool that people are actually putting that in spaces (laughs) that, you know, would benefit people, right? And even the the comics as, as media is really important to some of the things that we try to teach in middle grades language arts. You know, when we think about seventh, eighth grade students, we're starting to ask them to stop thinking literally and superficially Mm -hmm. and concretely about the things that they encounter and instead to start thinking implicitly and abstractly in ways that can be really challenging when you're tackling that for the first time. And so when I'm teaching middle grades, I often start off with a visual narrative unit where we talk about gutters. And the idea of the gutter is the best illustration I've been able to find for students to help them understand what is the difference between implicit and explicit. We do analysis of what do we think happens in between these things? Why do we think that happens? And suddenly they're like, oh, okay. Then reading between the lines, which is a phrase we often use, makes sense to them Mm. in ways that it doesn't if you just throw the phrase out there and say, okay, what's implicit in this passage or what's implicit in this paragraph or in this novel? And so the comics as a form really is, I think, incredibly useful for helping middle grade students make that leap. Oh, that's fascinating, Nick. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I mean, again, that's one of those things that... been guilty of just saying about comics in terms of their ability to teach visual literature and of course teaching at a university we do that too but like i don't know sure. getting people at kind of that formative time and getting them to to kind of make that leap is so different that's so exciting oh my god nick if i'd been like taught that that at that age <laughs> i would have been so gone for comics so much earlier <laughs> so jealous of your students let me ask you some questions about the comic we're going to be covering today so sure. as i said you last joined us for the claremont davis era of excalibur and it's fine if the answer to this is a no but like do you have any familiarity with the back half of excalibur or are you coming in fresh so i do have some familiarity but when i was going back i read the sort of two issue arc that we're looking at here 104 and 105 uh, as i was preparing for this and i remember Remember Douglock? I remember a yeah. lot of things about Douglock. I don't remember <laughs> this, even though, as yeah. Mav pointed out, it kind of happened twice. So um, this is a kind of a fresh look for me in a lot of ways because my recollection of it is not immediate in any way, shape, or form. Uh, there were definitely moments when I was reading, I was like, "Huh, interesting. I don't, I don't recall this, or I don't recall at least experiencing this in that way." So. Yeah, it'll be a little bit fresh for me. So at time of recording, you haven't heard last episode yet, right? So so that's not true, actually. I did I did listen to the last okay, episode. You did? Okay, okay. Because I actually say on that episode, I don't remember what happens next. I know I've read <laughs> it. I do not recall how it ends. It's going to be like reading it for the first time. So yeah, right there with you. I, I, don't, I, I, I know I've read this book more than once. Yeah. Um, this is This was very fresh for me. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because there are definitely visuals that... I remember, okay? I remember the image, that panel where Kitty is phasing into the grave and staring at the skeletal remains of Douglas, but I don't recall the story around it Mm. in a lot of ways. And I remember even listening to your last episode and you were talking about the fact that this has happened before. I went back and reread the Douglock Chronicles because I was like, 
I do remember this, but I don't remember it at the same time. And it's interesting because you you mentioned in that last episode that they, they're doing it again, and they are. But I think that at least in this fresh perspective, I like the way they're doing it in these two issues better. Hmm. And I yeah. I think that's partially because I think that, I don't know, my experience of the, the Doug Lock Chronicles reading it with fresh eyes right now is that there seems to be this insistence on making Doug Lock into this hyper-masculine alternative to Douglas Ramsey. And I think that... This version that we have, although in these two issues, he's very cold. Doug Locke's very cold. We don't get the same investment in a sort of hyper-masculine performance. And I think that's kind of refreshing. And I think it allows the issue that we're looking at today to do better work in terms of reading it in terms of identity. So I don't know. It, it was interesting to read it fresh, though, for sure. Ooh, okay, put a pin in that because I want to come right back to that because I definitely sure. want to talk about questions of identity today. And I know you're going to have lots of interesting thoughts about it. So we'll get right back to it after we do our issue summary. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely never dead name you, then dig up your grave, then break into your parents' home to prove you weren't you, which is a very low bar, admittedly. But still, in the interests of not being jerks, here's a helpful plot summary. Excalibur number 105 starts with Kitty Pride screaming. As you'll recall, she's fresh off phasing into Doug Ramsey's coffin and finding his body inside. When Doug Lock tries to comfort her, she accuses him of something, which she admits is kind of strange, and <laughs> takes it down a notch. She admits she's a jerk and keeps proving it by continuing to dead name her teammate. Meanwhile, <laughs> on Muir Island. Most of the remaining members of Excalibur, along with Moira McTaggart, are at the mercy of the mutant terrorist faction known as the Mutant Liberation Front. Ryan and Megan got taken down and captured in the last issue, so Moira tells Pete Wisdom and Piotr Rasputin to hold them off as long as possible, enough for her and Kurt to do something at the lab in the hopes of safeguarding the Xavier Protocols. The MLF, for their part, appear to be bickering with each other and their undercover leader, Danny Moonstar, which seems like it'll probably work out in our hero's favor. Back in Westchester, Kitty, Rain, and Douglock score some Zock, Kitty's still being convinced that showing Douglock stuff from Doug's past will help him remember he's actually Doug. Rain loves anchovies and Douglock hates sausage, though Kitty insists he loves it. We check back in at Muir Island, where Moira and Kurt are struggling with the force field protecting the lab. Moira says she's going to reroute power to keep it going and sends Kurt to help the others, but she was lying. As soon as she's gone, her <laughs> thoughts reveal she's going to shut the force field down. Colossus and Pete do some Rambo shit, and Kurt blunders in and nearly explodes everyone when it turns out the MLF is using Brian and Megan, two people I thought were kind of indestructible, as human shields. Anyway, it turns out Moira's force field worked after all, and the MLF are too dumb to test it. They leave without the Xavier Protocols. I'm sure I'm describing this plot accurately, I did struggle. Finally, back in the States, Kitty makes them all visit the Ramsey house where Doug's old room has been converted into a den. For whatever reason, this is the thing that makes Kitty accept Doug's really dead. Kitty walks over to Doug Lock and introduces herself, saying she is pleased to finally meet him. Okay, you sort of kicked us off with some of your first impressions, Nick, but let's get right back to it. You're coming in fresh, relatively fresh, as you said, with some lingering... <laughs> Uh, subconscious memories of this story arc. Sure. So yeah, what are you most most looking forward to discussing or griping about? That's a good question. There's so many things to talk about here. I think that if we're just going to go with very superficial first impressions, I was shocked at the visuals. I, I don't recall the visuals in these issues. And I honestly, I put off a lot of 90s era comics for a long time because I didn't love the art all that much. And this was weird. Like I, the first appearance of Rain in 104, like I was like, wait, is she hot? When did this happen? Like, it kind of threw me for a loop. And then Kurt shows up and I'm like, why is he not hot? Like, I don't understand. Yes. Like, what just happened here? Kitch does such like, a it's bad a... nightcrawler. I don't know why. It's really strange. And it's, I don't know. So 
I was sort of taken aback a little bit by by the art um, in certain ways, but I quickly settled in and I actually really enjoyed going through this issue. I think that in your last episode, you mentioned at one point, right, that there's a, a lot of writing, some of it's stilted, and there's a lot of melodrama. And I think for me, that's actually what I enjoyed the most about it. It harkened back in some ways to that earlier X-Men era where that was the default mode, the sort of high melodrama, these sort of brooding sort of figures at different times, etc. And I think that in some ways, if I'm able to read this issue through the lens of where I'm at and what I know and the identity politics that exist in 2023, I think this issue actually does some really amazing things. I don't know how much of that worked in 1997. I was busy preparing for my senior musical or something like that at the time <laughs> this came out. So that was you know, a while ago. But yeah, I'm really interested in thinking about some of the identity questions, particularly in terms of gender and sexuality, but also thinking a little bit in terms of the kind of techno-organic nature of Doug Glock as a being. So yeah. I'm happy to sort of talk about any of those things. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about the identity stuff again. And we talked about that briefly in our last episode, but then it seemed so much more underscored here with, you know, Kitty just insisting that he's not who he says he is. And this kind of goes on and on. Anyway, let me pick up some first impressions from Andrew and Mav and we'll get back to some yeah. of those questions. Andrew, how are you feeling about this one? Okay, so feeling not not great for the reasons that, that, that Mav described. Like, it does feel like this issue was resolved, like the conflict in it in the previous issue. She literally saw his dead body and she still needs proof, which I, I thought was kind of weird. But I really really do take Nick's point. I think there's some cool stuff here on the second go around um, that if you forgive it for repeating itself is well worth considering. Um, For me, one of the things that kind of um, launched this into new territory with Doug Locke is the cover, which is a riff on Ghost in the Shell, which would have been translated in English two years prior to this thing coming out and is a delightful masterclass on um, tech philosophy and the so-called fourth discontinuity. So I, I find myself reading Doug Locke in the context of that text and I find it lacking for that reason because the comparison's not oh, super Oh, that is not a fair comparison, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. other than that, like as I said, there's there's some really interesting choices here. Not so much the Mirror Island stuff, um, but I just feel like they keep, I don't know, trying to alley-oop Doug Locke and nobody can can put it in the net to butcher a sports metaphor. Uh, it just... <laughs> They, they keep trying and I love that they're trying because there's so much pathos invested in that but I'm just I'm having a hard time with them constantly bobbling it yeah I definitely you could tell from the issue summary I was frustrated with the Muir Island parts which I don't think that plot makes sense but um <laughs> because it doesn't yeah. because it doesn't that's the only reason it totally would but it doesn't it's mm -hmm. stupid <laughs> like I'm turning off the forest field but also it's still here and it was yeah. fine I don't know what she did anyway it's fine anyway Mav how are you feeling about it I hate this I mean I appreciate what Nick said I think you're right on some level but I, I figured it out and as I read this, I was like, oh, the reason I don't remember it is there's no issue here. There were 22 pages of story at best for last issue. And then this is just nothing. The Mer Island thing goes nowhere. I don't think that on the page, the Doug Locke story goes anywhere. I think there are reparative ways to look at it. And I actually appreciate a lot of what Nick said. But um, on the page, I think that this is a rehash of 
a story that we did 30 issues ago and we did better <laughs> literally last issue. Oh, so here, so here was my big problem. My big problem was of the care, like the Murray Island pit goes nowhere. I agree with Anna there for the stuff with the, with the story that could be interesting with rain and Kitty and Doug or Doug lock, whichever you want it to be, but characters that I actually care about their relationships. I hated all of them. I guess I'm okay with Rain, but she was boring here. She 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 wasn't interesting to the story other than she was there. But I hated Kitty here. I hated yeah. I was like, you I was like, you are insufferable and stop. It would have been an opportunity to go, okay, she's being she misses her friend, which is what Rain's there for. Rain's like she misses her friend and you gotta give her some time to like work her way through this, you know. Cause she forgot that she'd worked her way through it 30 issues ago. So she's working, she's working some stuff out and fine. Like rain wants us to do that. And then I'd maybe be able to accept Kitty's abusiveness. If Doug weren't an insufferable dick too. And, the, and that's kind of where like, like there is like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to get sarcasm. I'm like, no, it, he reminded me of, um, and I'm just, this here's my reparative reading. We've since learned that with AI, that if you create an AI and you point it at Twitter, it becomes an asshole within about half an hour. Yep. It just naturally learns to do that. And we've done it a couple of times. If you give it like a whole week, it can turn into a Nazi. This is absolutely true. This is how, how language models work because Twitter is just accessible. And so that's what will happen if an AI reads all of all of Twitter. And I feel like Doug Locke did that because oh, no. you're being a jerk and it's un it's it's not amusing for me to read. It's like you're being rude. He's like, oh, well, you know, what did you think you'd do? I would do. Do you think I killed a body? I'm like, I, I like he's got a point, but also where did you learn this kind of snark? And it's so mean spirited that I can't feel sorry for him either. And I, I just hated it. I, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> Well, maybe just to the point of redundancy, uh, I will point out that the resolution of the conflict in this story literally happens off panel. Mm -hmm. That is so weird that the idea that we don't go in that den with the characters, it, it just turned the yeah. page and, oh, I went into a den and now I feel differently. Um, I don't know <laughs> yeah. what happened there, if they ran out of pages or what. She says den like five times too. And I'm just like, it's just the dialogue's weird there. Anyway, Nick, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm listening to sort of Mav talk about this and, and I'm listening to the sort of deep frustration that he's feeling. And I think that this is why for me, like this issue is valuable from my 2023 perspective, but may not have been for me in 1997. In part because, you know, Kitty is a jerk here, but in this moment, as I was reading this issue, like Kitty was every single turf that I've encountered online or in, yeah. in, in any other sort of space in the sense mm -hmm. that most of the people that I've met who are TERFs were people that I looked up to for their stances on other things up until they decided this was the thing that they were going to die on. And the fact that she had evidence, that she had a resolution in issue 104, and we still came back and got another issue may not be great storytelling, but actually seems to hold really true to me in the sense that no amount of evidence seems to be enough yes. for people who want to take mm -hmm. an anti-trans or an anti-queer stance mm -hmm. uh, and who want to assume binaries and who want to assume fixed identities. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I feel like the story of Kitty there being a jerk actually hit home for me because I'm like, I know so many people who I was like, man, you're one of my favorite people. Holy crap. What did you just say? Mm -hmm. Um, and then they won't back down. They double down, they double down, they double down. And so while I don't think that it's intentional or necessarily even true to the 1997 version of this story, reading it the other day, I was like, I can see this. I can mm -hmm. see people like this. And so I know that I'm bringing a lot of that sort of personal 
baggage into the narrative as my mode of reading right now. But when I do that, I think I feel a lot more forgiving of what happens in this non-story story, <laughs> only because I think I can do stuff with it that is important. Yeah. I think it's fair to do because you're doing what you talked about teaching your students to do. You're reading between the gutters, and that's a good thing. My frustration with it is that when we're doing that kind of reparative reading, I'm gonna, I'll use I'll, I'll use your your analogy, right? If J.K. Rowling is suddenly just the worst, and she's the worst person ever, which she is, right? Like. And it hurts. And I understand why that hurts people. And it's fair that it hurts people. It should hurt people because she's being awful. But every once in a while, she ends up into in an argument with a queer person who you're like, yeah, you're being kind of an asshole, too. So I mm -hmm. so I, I lose my ability to choose sides. Like, right. it's not it's not so much that like Rowling's right because she's not she's often being insufferable to someone who's also sometimes being insufferable and like i'd rather she be in arguments with someone that i can respect and that that way i can have the uh, that way i can have a you know a cleaner now life doesn't really work out that way like in real life people are messy but this isn't real life it's a comic book and i felt like doug lock was distractingly annoying and, and, and that's fair. And I think that that's also fair, though, too. I mean, again, I maybe I'm bringing my sort of middle grades teaching experience into this. But one of the things that I find when you're dealing with behavioral issues with um, particularly with LGBT middle school students is that they are carrying so much trauma with them that they often react inappropriately to things that aren't necessarily meant to be triggering or that aren't necessarily even bad, but they have been socially conditioned in ways to react in ways that make it seem like they're having behavioral issues themselves, even though we know the root exists somewhere else. And so so again, probably for me, I was forgiving Doug Locke for this because I'm trying to imagine the sort of trauma that that sort of snarky reaction comes from mm -hmm. uh, in different ways when you're being dead named and when you're being when somebody's gaslighting you about your own experience, yeah. right? Yeah, I was a bit more sympathetic to him as well. I, I think it's a little weird, though, coming back to, to, to Mav's point about how you really kind of hate Kitty in this one. Like for contrast, Rain is the one who's brought up in a fundamentalist environment and, and has shown bigotry many times throughout the series. So having her there as well and being the accepting one in contrast to Kitty Pride, that like arguably the most accepting character character in comics history is maybe frustrating Ooh, i don't also, mm. i don't know that I, well maybe she is maybe she's not but also rain was literally dating doug when he died like yeah. if anybody should have have issues with this like i mean it was the beginning of their relationship and died but for that's, her and died taking a bullet for her <laughs> like this is it, it's it's infuriating because I feel like this is written by someone who didn't actually do the homework of reading the Doug story or the the Fallings Covenant. So I don't know who it's for, and that's and and it frustrates me. And maybe you know, maybe if I am just reading along and jumping in and out of the series, it's fine. But especially now, where I have specifically for work been reading the last hundred and four issues, <laughs> you know, like so, like so, like I know these things that like why don't you know this? It is it, it frustrates me because I cannot look at it in a vacuum. It feels broken and i want to I, I'll, I'll talk about you know things with queer identity in a little bit about what i think makes the metaphor of say warlock and doug the real doug interesting is not any individual story with warlock or doug but taking their entire relationship both in the new mutants run back then and in what's happening with the characters today i find an interesting version you know like looking at that as a whole is 
interesting. So when someone writes that very much ignoring past intricacies, it makes me feel like, what are you doing here? Like, I, I don't know that there are trying to do anything interesting other than saying, hey, he's Doug, but he's not. Hey, hey, interesting, interesting, huh? I'm leaving the book next issue, so I don't care. Well, well I think there's... Has anybody here seen the remake of One Day at a Time, the television series? Yes. Yeah. Um, the experience of of rain here that we're talking about. And then, and I think Andrew brought up the fundamentalist background there, right? Actually reminds me of the grandmother on one day at a time when uh, Elena comes out to her because the mother figure in that who is trying to be super progressive and is really invested in wanting to be accepting starts to have issues with the fact that her daughter's a lesbian. Mm -hmm. And then this happens and they come out to the grandma and the mom is actually in some ways hoping the grandma reacts worse than she does so that she can, you know, feel okay about herself because she's trying to mm -hmm. figure out how to be okay about her daughter. And the grandma, who is a devout Catholic and has been bigoted herself at different points in the series, works out a rationale to accept and love her granddaughter in like 30 seconds. And that becomes the sort of big punchline of that moment of coming out. And again, I think that there's something interesting about it being rain that's sort of like, okay, I'm cool with that. Because people are messy, as Mav pointed out. And we don't always, in reality, react with what we might consider continuity or consistency or any of those types of things. And so for me, that moment of rain, like, yeah, maybe it's not true to the storyline in the ways that we would imagine a sort of long continuity in terms of the comics. But there is a moment in that that still also can feel real to me. But again, I'm also reading this out of context. I haven't been here for all 104 issues or 105 right. issues at this point. Um, but there is something that, again, that I was able to sort of pull from that that was like, oh, like I, I can also see that moment. And I've seen that with members of my extended family who grew up in deeply fundamentalist backgrounds and have shocked me sometimes in ways that some of my more progressive friends have not when it comes to modern concerns about identity, particularly in terms of gender and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I... Again, I'm doing reparative reading for this as well. But at the same time, like much as Nick was saying, I found some of the intersections here kind of interesting. You know, the expectation that Kitty would be more accepting and that Rain wouldn't be being inverted. As much as it doesn't make sense to where these characters were in terms of the ongoing story, I do find that an interesting story beat for many of the reasons that Nick said. You know, sometimes the people that you expect to be one way surprise you, right? And then Rain has the connection with Douglock that they are both visibly different mutants. And we have that underscore here when they go to the pizza place and we don't see the image inducer represented on panel but we have it alluded to in dialogue that they're using image inducers to fit in whereas kitty doesn't have to do okay. that so we have like the issue of them having a shared visible physical difference being underscored except, here in the text except rain does not need an image inducer at this point in her history she was literally turning into a regular human girl too issue i know so that doesn't make and, sense and, 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 and that's the insane like that's the infuriating part for me there was a point when rain was stuck in wolf girl mode that was in real comics time resolved like three years ago so like what are you doing like she's been turning into human and and that's that's my problem with it, it it's a mistake that makes it hard for me to take the metaphor seriously because you didn't do the homework of reading the issue before you were in i know and like that's all true and i agree but at the same time Again, when I'm reading this reparatively, mm -hmm. I'm reading it as Rain choosing to be in her wolf girl form because she's comfortable in that form and having that visually represented on the page as her being comfortable with that difference in this moment. Again, I'm not saying it makes sense with Lorraine's larger yeah. story, mm -hmm. but I think it worked for me in the context of this particular story and some of the things that they were doing in terms of Kitty's normalizing impulses and how hard she's kind of going on that. And, you know, that issue that we, that Nick brought up right at the beginning, right? Kitty just no amount of proof is enough proof for her. 
And again, I did find that very resonant with particularly a lot of the anti-trans rhetoric these days. And, and yeah, I did find that the stories felt a little bit more interesting to me within some of these 2023 contexts. But in the interest of being a little bit reparative about it, I mean, we've done plenty of the griping for how it doesn't make sense in the larger story. But one of the Mm -hmm. angles I wanted to kind of pick up with it, I mean, we can talk more about queerness and intersecting with that. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about asexuality, particularly because Nick has done some really great work on asexuality in comics. You have an award-winning essay on that subject. (laughs) And yeah, I was curious about whether you thought that would be, I don't know, a reading that we could bring to a story like this. Because it's, it's sort of, you know, we've talked about doing asexual readings of pop culture texts before and how it's complicated. And especially in this story too, where like there are romantic impulses, it seems like with Doug Locke, and yet still Kitty's obsession with sort of orienting him into sort of like a normative vein and Doug Locke <laughs> resisting that. It just seemed like there was something there to me. So like, yeah, I don't know. The question maybe let's like frame it a little bit in terms of like representations of asexuality. Like you talk about in your essay about asexuality in comics, which we'll link in the show notes, that it is sort of one of the least represented identities sort of in comics and pop culture in general like could you sort of talk to us a little bit about about why that might be and why it's important to represent sure i mean i think that you know the the ongoing phrase that we always use with asexuality right is it's the invisible orientation Mm -hmm, right we mm -hmm. treat it as a lack or as a negation of what is considered the default or the normative uh and that is what i think makes it challenging sometimes to create particularly visual representations of asexuality but it's also in some ways very akin when we think about the different or identity categories that have become more visible, um, better acknowledged in recent years, asexuality, um, right, trans identities, non-binary identities, right, what these all share in common is this rejection of binaries and static social categories, right? And I think that looking at this from an ace lens makes a lot of sense to me, regardless of whether or not there are romantic or sexual relationships that happen later, because asexuality, much like any other form of orientation, can be considered fluid, right? It's not something that has to be static or fixed. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think that trans, uh, non-binary, and ace identities are really important for us to think about because of the fact that they all openly reject some of these binaries that we try to live by. I was actually thinking about the the essay that I wrote when I was reading this issue in the part where they're talking about the sausage, which you referenced in the introduction, right? <laughs> yeah. um, the line, I don't like sausage, even though Kitty's insisting that he likes sausage, is so similar to what we find in uh, Sex Criminals issue number 13, yep. Where Alex, who is the asexual character in that issue, is trying to figure out her identity. And we have this one page where it's literally just 20 panels of her looking at a penis, right? This sort of <laughs> constant overwhelming exposure to this in that idea that if I if I see it enough, if I'm there enough, if I look at it enough, I will want it, I will be it, I will, you know, I will step out of this identity that I feel like I'm in. And in some ways, you know, looking at Doug Locke's I don't like sausage line, you know, Kitty is basically throwing penis in his face and he's like this is not me right Mm -hmm. and so I think there are ways for us to imagine um, certain types of asexual reading here particularly in the sense that asexuality and asexuality studies have disrupted a lot of the normative categories that we tended to use even within LGBT studies for a long time um, and have asked us to reconsider how fixed those categories are um, what those categories mean how productive they are for us in terms of understanding identity so I think there's a lot of room for that. I don't think that Doug Locke is necessarily a quintessential ace character in the same way that Doug Locke is not strictly a trans character or a non-binary character. I think Doug Locke exists in this sort of umbrella queer space in which... Mm 
His existence is defying normative identity categories and social relationships as they are being written by other people. And that is something that would resonate with asexual persons, trans persons, uh, non-binary persons. It doesn't have to be that he is one of these things. His storyline here, I think, can resonate and his rejection of those binaries can resonate with all of those identities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good, that's sort of a good summary of some of what I was bringing to it. I mean, let's identify maybe in the interest of being a bit teacherly about it. I mean, what are some of the ways that Kitty does try to like <laughs> impose a normative identity on him? Because I feel like there's a number of moments throughout this comic. I mean, we talked about the pizza one, but like, were there other moments that kind of stood out to you, Nick, in terms of being emblematic of some of these normatizing impulses that we see in the real world. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, we could look at any number of examples. I think the 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 important thing there is that Kitty is doing something that both Rain and Douglock recognize is an attempt to drag him into a past that he has never existed in, uh-huh. right? To drag him into an identity that he has never fully inhabited. And it is something that she she thinks that exposure she, she feels like exposure to these things is going to somehow change him into the person that she thinks he is, right? And that, I think, is the part that really resonates with so many of these queer identities, right? You know, I mean, how many queer women have had some guy say, like, well, once you're with the right guy or once you're yeah, with me, yeah. you know, but da da right? I mean, all of those sort of terrible narratives, right? Like, there's this idea that if we expose somebody to what we consider to be normal long enough, they will change, mm-hmm. right? Even if you know, that is a fundamental change in their person, their being, their soul, whatever you have. Um, and I think that Kitty's insistence on trying to drag Douglock into these spaces, into this type of exposure, reflects the sense that she is unwilling to accept the fact that um, she doesn't determine in his worldview or in others' worldview what constitutes normal. Yeah, it reminded me of the trope of you need to be fixed from (laughs) your queer identity needs to be fixed because somehow your queer identity is rooted in trauma. And if we get rid of the trauma, you'll just be quote unquote normal again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because it's like, if you recapture that normative person you used to be, like you'll get rid of this trauma of who you are now. And it's like such a, it's such a painful narrative to read because especially because it's been going on for so long and because it's coming back in the storyline when it was already resolved. But yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah. And even the line, right? I mean, you know, Andrew did a great job of pointing out some of the single lines last episode in which, you know, there were some great written lines there. When Douglock says, at times I wish I were Douglas Ramsey to ease yeah. her pain, yeah. right? Like mm. how painful and how true to so many queer narratives is that, right? I Sometimes I wish I wasn't gay. Sometimes I wish I wasn't trans just because it seems to be causing other people pain, yes. right? Yes. And that's where my, my hatred towards Kitty in these issues comes from because you have this queer character, this queer coded character in my mind who is trying to imagine being something else to take the pain away from her, right? And I think about how many of us cause that type of pain in the lives of our queer friends and family and how devastating it is to think about that in this narrative, especially in our contemporary political climate where we have increasingly draconian laws aimed at, for example, trans people, et cetera, right? Like this was a painful moment to read, one that like I felt emotional when he said that. Yeah, and I mean, it speaks to the unchangeableness of identity. You know, I wish I could have a different identity, but I can't. But the Mm -hmm. fact that you would ever wish you were speaks to the shame and guilt that's being heaped upon Doug Locke through this exchange. And yeah, again, reparative reading, 2023 Mm -hmm. eyes, but like, yeah, I felt that too, Nick. Can I talk to the the sort of non-reparative element that kind of hovers over this for me a little bit? Go for it. So 
Doug Ramsey in the pages of New Mutants and X-Men comics in the early 1980s was a very rare example of a queer-coded male-loving male relationship uh, in terms of Warlock. That has been well-established by scholars. Claremont has been all but completely open in, in admitting that. So for me, when we talk about asexuality as a category of sexuality today versus back then, I agree with Nick. I think it's not there. Do you know what I mean? Like, like there's no awareness of it. It's considered an absence. So to me, there's an element of... Um, um, you have these two subtextually queer characters uh, in, in Morlock and Doug. You killed one of them for reasons that I would like to think had nothing to do um, with the sexuality aspect. Uh, so the kill your gaze trope is still at play, though. And then this thing comes back, Doug Lock, uh, which is the two of them together, but the sexuality isn't there. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like treating this not as a commentary on asexuality, but as an absence of queer sexuality, which I, I think is maybe the more 97 potential reading. And for that, that, that really diminishes my appreciation of, of Doug Locke as a character um, because it, it's literally this walking desexualized shadow of a character whose sexuality was a rare representational milestone by the 1980 standards. So I, I have a hard time getting past that. I don't mean that as a challenge to the reading because I like Nick's reading better than mine. Me too. I think it's much <laughs> more interesting uh, and, and it makes so much sense for uh, readers today. I'm just saying this is the thing that's ruining my enjoyment <laughs> sure. of that reading. That is sure. fair. That, that is very fair. And one of the and one of the reasons why I. I think that I personally just avoid the 1997 reading is that when you look yeah. at the Muir Island stuff and you look at the other parts of these issues, et cetera, right? It's impossible for me from a perspective of the 90s and the, and the perspective in which this is written to not think about, you know, the legacy virus being HIV AIDS coded, right. et cetera, and also to think about the mutant liberation front as a really warped representation of the gay liberation front at that point, right? And mm -hmm. so I'm reading this, this text right now reparatively for my own sanity in some ways. Right. But recognizing that the counterpart of this very same issue is one that is not at all queer friendly, right? That is actually like, don't get so activist with your gayness, right? It's, yeah, it's yeah. the sort of act up critique that is built into the MLF um, that I can't stand behind, right? And so, as you notice, I haven't really talked much about that part of the issue. Nobody seems to like <laughs> that part of the issue, so we're okay with that. Yeah. Um, from a 1997 perspective, right, I don't think that this is a, a, an issue that is aware of its own queer potential or is willfully ignoring its own queer potential in ways that are super problematic. I just like to read it another way right now because honestly, in this sort of day and age and the sort of dealing with all the anti-trans stuff that's happening, I want to pretend in my mind that these comics that I'm reading and love are doing something productive alongside me. <laughs> that's the only way I survive I'm sometimes. I'm 100% yeah. oh, yeah. I, I, I'm similar. I think that there's – so I think Nick's reading has a very the author is dead you know, vibe to it, yeah. right? Like you can do whatever you want and I'm cool with that. I have a similar issue to Andrew, which is with why why it's hard for me and why I can't quite get there. Part of it is I, I think I agree 100 percent with everything you said about about the Doug and Warlock relationship and the complexity of it. And what I've always loved about Doug in the Doug and Warlock relationship is I think I, t I said before, I, I've always read Doug as very intentionally bisexual in that yeah, he I, that. he very much loves Warlock. I also think he very much loves Kitty, who he knows doesn't reciprocate, mm -hmm. and 
he very much loves rain like i think that he is a confused boy but also <laughs> i think he's honest with himself in that he knows that he can pursue these it, there's a poly queerness to it and so i think that doug lock erases a lot of that especially in we're, we're never going to get to it on the show so i will spoil the future but eventually it just turns out he's warlock <laughs> it's just like that's right. the that's the resolution to the doug lock storyline is oh he was just warlock all along and okay so that so end of story but i don't think they know that when they're writing this like i think that he is intended to be ah, i'm not doug i'm not warlock either what am i would be okay, anything so, ha, ha, ha. so i have an answer to that potentially because this is where another symbolic element becomes problematic mm -hmm. for me when doug and warlock merge in in, in again in early 1980s when they're mm -hmm. doug lock that is a sex scene yes you know what i mean unambiguously yes, not that and this yeah, isn't that exactly <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's this representation of their their sexual merger allegorically and it's desexualized and that again makes it hard for me i don't know I would point out just really quickly, though, that when we were talking about asexuality and we talk about use phrases like desexualize, right? Asexual people still can have and do have sexual right. relationships, yeah, right? It's, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. So I just want to make sure that we're not we're not lumping asexuality into this complete absence of sex when we well, talk about no, no, no. I'm talking that's about that that the, the '90s, yeah, like, right. like the, the way that Giffen is perceiving. Sure, right. The that's sure. specifically well. what I want to talk about. So I I, I will point at um one of the problems with reparative reading as an art is what makes it and i've you know and you've heard me do it on this show if you're listening so it's not like i'm <laughs> against it i've done it many times one of the flaws in reparative reading as an art is it necessarily involves you eliminating canon and i find that more problematic when the canon that you have to eliminate is identities that like don't have a lot of representation to start with yeah. for instance the queerness between of doug and warlock is uh, it's not so much that asexual people can't have sex it's that in order to have this we are explicitly it's not just that they were having sex it was an intimate we are doing this expressly sexual not asexual thing that was the doug and warlock like there were there are repeated references to it to where neither doug nor warlock i mean they were they explicitly were very sexual so that was the weirdness of it and to undo that to undo that narratively should take work and not carelessness which is how this reads to me like I, like i think nick is doing a better job than giffen <laughs> did if if that were the intention and like i like giffen actually there are other annihilation books man he's fantastic yeah. at times i love a lot of his justice league stuff so yeah, yeah. so like, yeah so like uh, it's not that it's just that like this reads carelessly to me and uh, i'll give an ex uh, a different example is um and i don't even know if people know this currently in comics in her most recent appearance except for it's on the web not in paper floppy comics so is it canonical who knows maybe maybe gwenpool is asexual now like right. there's a story oh, I where think, she's i think she's i think gwen is gwenpool is canonically asexual now she's yeah canonically asexual in books that were only released online because that makes them easier to ignore and to ignore the several times where she clearly wasn't and that's weird because it's not because i i'm all for doing something and uh, and representing an identity that doesn't exist but it's problematic when it is done carelessly across yeah. the line so like if they because like i honestly i'm not convinced that she's not just going to be you know a generic sexy Deadpool the next time we see her in 
you know, some other book written by someone who didn't bother to read the web series. That's mm. the weirdness. And like, and, and it's, and it breaks because I think that if someone just decides they've, they stop paying attention to some part of Peter Parker's past, you know, whatever, he's had millions of issues and it's not a big deal. There's millions of other straight characters. But when you have a character like Doug and Warlock or a set of characters like Doug and Warlock who are representing a, an impoverished identity to start with, the carelessness bothers me more. Right. I mean, I, w- I will say I I just 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 quickly like I do have hope for the Gwenpool thing. It definitely got a lot of traction in my particular mix of majority queer like comic book fans. So if they walk yeah. back that identity, there would be definitely a lot of vocal fan pushback. That doesn't mean it won't happen. It, I, it was received right. quite positively. <laughs> it was it was received quite po- pos- positively yeah. in a very very small but yeah. vocal minority. So uh, it's just I I have a hard time believing that they would never do that when sure. there are how many other queer characters have you seen just erased on a page with the wave of a hand a bajillion times so i'm just going to my... be optimistic about this one i'm choosing sure. optimism today anyway nick you wanted to jump in <laughs> i was just going to say that maybe one of the things that might be helpful for us as we're working through this right is maybe abandoning the language of sedgwick and maybe not referring to this as you know <laughs> yeah. reparative readings but instead turning to somebody like ahmed and thinking about this as an act of queer vandalism because that gets us outside of the canons and continuities and i actually wanted to look up the quote from Sarah Ahmed to make sure that I'm saying this right. Her early definition of queer vandalism says, when we recover a potential from materials, when we refuse to use things properly, we are often understood not only as causing damage, but as intending what we cause. Queer use could thus also be interpreted as vandalism, the willful destruction of the venerable and the beautiful. And I'm really interested in that phrase, right? This idea of recovering a potential from materials and refusing to use them properly. And I think that maybe that right there is an easier way for me to approach how I'm reading these issues. Um, Because I don't want to repair the work that they did poorly in 1997. I don't want to repair <laughs> the, the carelessness of it. What I want to do actually is okay. I want to vandalize these two issues so that we can actually recover potential from them yeah. that may not have been intended and may not even make sense within the larger storyline. What is the potential that we can recover if we vandalize all of these, if we refuse to use these issues as they were intended, but instead draw something else out from them, which is, you know, I think maybe where, you know, even things like, you know, when Anna brought up the idea that we could have an asexual reading of this text, right? It's clearly not intended. Um, it's clearly not part of the 1997 canon. But if we take the opportunity to vandalize the work of these artists and writers, et cetera, and to recover some potential for queer narratives here that are asexual or trans or non-binary, right? Maybe that's the type of work that is going to be, at least at this point, more rewarding for us as comic scholars, especially when we think about the fact that, you know, and this is maybe coming from my own personal space, how often as a young comics reader, I was gatekept from being a real comics fan because I didn't have access to the canons or the continuities that were available. I read almost everything piecemeal for the first decade or so that I read comics. And the idea that, you know, I couldn't do something with those even without knowing that sort of full backstory, without knowing the continuities seems painful also to me, right? And I think that this idea of being able to vandalize the work that is there in these sort of serialized form of media probably is really important for us as teachers, scholars, et cetera. I love I like that, that reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that I works. I couldn't yeah, put it we're better. All on board. <laughs> Let's uh, let's go to some final thoughts. We can talk about the MLF story and our final thoughts if we want. I'm not devoting the whole section to it. But anyway, we'll start with you, Andrew. Anything you want to circle back to or bring up before we wrap up discussion of this issue? Yeah, there's, there's a line in it. 
and maybe this is nothing, but maybe it indicates a lot of the problems we're talking about. Um, where Danny's talking to, I think, Forearm or Wildside, does it does not matter at all, and says, We didn't expect the force to make it easy. And I'm like, Did Giffen maybe think he was writing X Force? Because <laughs> that's a really weird <laughs> turn of phrase. Um, and that, that kind of stood out to me as something that might have been hilarious, or I'm making too much. I thought it was like a Star Wars joke. No, I think it's, I think, it, I think Andrew's absolutely right. I think that the KL, I'm sorry, that the MLF usually um appears in x-force and so, <laughs> so that's what yeah. he that's what he did that's funny um mav anything you want to bring up or circle back to they're justified and they're ancient and they like to roam the land they're justified and they're ancient i hope you understand they called me up to tennessee they said tammy stand by the jams but if you don't like what they're going to do you better not stop because they're coming through and that's what i think of every time the mlf shows up that's uh <laughs> the lyrics of justified and ancient by the klf and tammy wynette a favorite song of mine um, I'm a big fan of the KLF. I only wanted to mention the MLF because they're in here. And I remember last issue, we were like, I said, I didn't remember what happened. And I was like, will I find out next issue? No. And I don't think they, I don't believe they come back. So I think that in the context of our, of our show, this is just an unresolved plot line that like, I literally don't care enough about to even Google and see why Danny was in the MLF in the first place. I don't remember. I don't care. I bet you no one ever mentions it again. Sort of like Douglock. Like Douglock just is Warlock. We find that out later. It never comes up in modern comics because no one cares about this storyline or this part, this portion of their history. So it's I, I think it's just not going to come up because if it is, then you have to deal with the fact that, hey, shouldn't Rain and Warlock go? Didn't we date for a while? Back <laughs> but they don't do that. That's ignored. And Danny, you know, who sees members of the the MLF in Krakula stories now should be like, hey, remember when we were teammates and we broke into Mariah and then, you know, just left without doing anything for no apparent reason? <laughs> that was weird, wasn't it? Yeah, apparently it was just weird. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't really seem like the thing that would probably come up. I mean, things were hazy back in 1997. A lot, <laughs> yeah. People were doing a lot of drugs. Mm. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Is that what you're getting at? Just <laughs> <laughs> two little things for me. I, first of all, I wanted to ask whether Pizza Bonanza is a place that's showed up in X-Men comics previously or whether it was just invented for this comic because it's hilarious. It. Pizza Bonanza, everyone. <laughs> there are places they could have gone to that like they, they used to hang out at in New it's, this is not one of them but it's like it happens so much in comics like they make up a place to go to and like they give it the most insane name <laughs> and you're like thank goodness that the people who write comics or letter comics or whoever decided on that name are not responsible for actually naming businesses although would frequent pizza bonanza it's great um my other thing i don't even want to gripe on this but it's just like i found myself staring at it a lot because it's the opening splash page but like the broke back pose that hitch has kitty do when she's coming out of the ground on the opening splash page mm. i mean certainly there are many more egregious ones in comics but at the same time it was just one of those like and i actually like hitch's art here for the most part but it was just one of those like pick your spots man <laughs> like was this the most appropriate <laughs> spot to put this much info like emphasis on kitty's crack i mean you know pick your spots buddy anyway <laughs> just a mild complaint there nick i'm coming back to you for the final word on this issue anything that you would like to talk about that we didn't get a chance or anything that you'd want to circle back to in closing yeah i think just in closing um you know again this was 1997 this was a few years before the first time i read uh, a cyborg manifesto by donna haraway and mm -hmm. 
that's been a text that's been with me for a long time. And I think one that makes a lot of sense when we start thinking about, you know, techno-organic creatures as, you know, non-binary alternatives or trans metaphors or ace metaphors, et cetera. But the thing I remember most about the end of that essay is that Haraway encourages us not to be afraid of permanently partial identities and contradictory standpoints. And I think that in a narrative like the two issues that we've just covered, 104 and 105, if we want to be queer vandals, if we want to think about how we might recover potential from this particular narrative, I think that Haraway's encouragement there might be useful for us, right? What does what does this issue do that allows us to maybe not be afraid of these permanently partial identities? How does this issue help us to think more clearly about contradictory standpoints? Because those things are at the heart of feminist projects, queer projects, etc. And I think definitely makes sense in terms of the multifaceted character of Doug Locke in all of his various forms always happy to talk about Haraway. <laughs> and I really appreciate you bringing that up in closing. What I'm going to do in closing is to spotlight real briefly a letter from the Sword Strokes letters page. This is from Marissa Nemeth. Not going to read the whole letter. It's just the last paragraph of it that interests me. One of the questions that they had for our editors was, do you have any plans to make Kurt and Amanda more than boyfriend slash girlfriend? They make a good couple and I think that they should get married. The editor's response is, with all the change in the air, anything, and we mean anything can and will happen we have some very definite plans for these two 1997 will be a year Kurt and Amanda will not soon forget and if that sounded sinister it was supposed to readers who know what happens will understand what I'm alluding to there we'll get to it before long I was not born to live a man's life but to be the stuff of future memory the fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. We will wrap things up there. Nick, thank you from the bottom of our Excalibur loving hearts for joining us. Just love this conversation so, so, so much. Um, Before we go, um, we need to remind our lovely listeners of the places that they can find some of your wonderful work. I know that things have been a little bit slowed down with you a bit with the new job, but please like uh, reference some of your past things because you've done some great work for middle spaces and stuff that's open access for our listeners. So if you want to wrap some of your projects or uh, signpost some upcoming stuff, go right ahead. Sure, yeah. So I think that, you know, obviously the middle spaces, which is not publishing new content anymore, is a great place to find some of my public scholarship. Uh, I might just spotlight the fact that I have an essay there on Shira, uh, technology and non-binary politics that actually I think dovetails nicely with this conversation. There's a, a bit of work there with Kara Keeling's ideas about queer OS. That might be an interesting way of thinking about Doug Locke as well. Um, you're obviously welcome to go back to Inc. sort of the Oxford Handbook of Comic Book Studies to find some of my work on Dazzler or Jughead or Sex Criminals, which I referenced earlier. And, you know, Hopefully in the very near future, I'll have some more news on our edited collection on the X-Men, the animated series, which is still in progress um, and still moving forward. So hope to have that out with Jeremy Carnes and Margaret Galvin uh, in the near future. So you can find me also online. I, I am not on Twitter slash X anymore. I <laughs> Elon just was too much for me. So I am sadly existing in the metaverse right now in terms of using threads. threads. Are you on threads? I'm, I'm... I am on threads at, un at Uncanny Dazzler, which is where you can find me just about any 
anywhere. I should probably get Blue Sky at some point. I don't know, but I'm around on Instagram, TikTok. I don't really do any TikToks, but I'll lurk if you want me to. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm liking threads lately, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Everything and- feels better than Twitter right now. So it's, you know, know. low bar, but yes. I, I understand. Yeah. I understand the problems of like, you know, enemy of my enemy is my friend. We're just yeah. treating Zuck like he's a savior and he's not. But I, but threads has been like low key, like nice. I, I've been enjoying it. <laughs> it's kind of like rooting for Disney against DeSantis, right? Yes. <laughs> we were talking earlier today of moving sequential scholars over there so we'll see what happens oh okay okay yeah. everyone should read sex criminals you are correct that's good <laughs> i couldn't agree more anyway just thank you so much again nick well, thank you this was fun next the rabissance is upon us as new regular writer ben rab teams up with new regular pencil salvador la Roca to introduce an era that isn't always good but is often wild and god help me i am looking forward to talking about it and i've somehow convinced a real rogues gallery of comic scholars and critics to keep coming to talk about it with us in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out the fab youtube videos which we've done for many of our earlier episodes plus our holiday specials you can find those via our website or the vox podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode i think i've only got about three more spots i'm trying to fill so not super open to pitches right now but i'm not ruling it out anyway you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at gosh golly wow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you mav and andrew for helping uncover hard truths thank you nick for showing how the sausage is made thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought form music for a truly epic theme song play us out I, I, i didn't quite nail that joke but i tried